Hi there, welcome to the History of Violence. Today is a cultural history of swords. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed the last episode. Um, if you've not listened to it, please check it out. It's a really great interview um, about election violence in Victorian England. Um, today is going to be another one of just myself narrating, but there will be uh, some more interviews coming up. Um, some of these might be on some pretty heavy topics, uh, so today I'm going to keep it light. You know, it's summer, we're all feeling good, um, and just have an episode about everyone's favourite sort of swashbuckling, chivalrous, heroic weapon. So why is it that people, especially men, from all around the world and from the Punic Wars to Star Wars, just love swinging them about? Well, aside from the obvious. Folklore and literature are full of symbolic and mystical weapons, and those weapons are almost always swords. King Arthur's Excalibur symbolised his right to rule, and Andrew plays a similar role for Aragon in The Lord of the Rings. Samurai movies are defined by their sword fights, something which was directly translated into lightsaber battles in Star Wars. In Game of Thrones, almost every major character and family has their own legendary sword, in real life, when the communist group M19 launched their campaign against the Colombian state, they started by stealing the sword of the great Latin American liberator Simon Bolivar from a museum, leaving a note which read, Bolivar, your sword returns to the battlefield. Even more recently, we were treated to the amazing sight of Steven Seagal on a diplomatic mission on behalf of Vladimir Putin, presenting Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro with a samurai sword. I'm not joking, go and look the picture up immediately. However, swords have been declining in usefulness for hundreds of years, and even in ancient warfare they were rarely the primary weapon. The ancient Greeks, with their highly collectivised forms of hoplite warfare, placed far more emphasis on the military symbolism of the defensive shield. Even the samurai, who nowadays are associated purely with sword fighting, focused primarily on archery throughout most of their history. Swords did become a very common weapon for a time, but that doesn't explain all of their enduring cultural appeal. Other weapons, like the halberd or slingshot, have been superseded by technological advancement and then largely ignored other than by military historians. But swords maintain a central place in our understanding of war and combat and even heroism, with their depictions not only being limited to historical dramas. So, how did swords become and remain so symbolically important across different cultures, from Japan to Colombia into a galaxy far, far away? Humans have used sharpened tools made from wood and bone from the Neolithic era onwards, but these would have been daggers rather than swords, since the materials available couldn't have supported a long, durable blade. The Bronze Age brought in tools made of, well, bronze and copper. This allowed for more effective bladed weapons to be used, but they were still quite limited. Anything significantly longer than a dagger would lack strength over repeated use. The first real swords were constructed around 1600 BC, although they would be extremely short by later standards. The ancient Greeks did use swords, but they were still a sort of glorified knife that would have been used as a weapon of last resort. Large-scale battles in military training focused on the spear and shield hoplite formation, with little attention being paid to swordsmanship. The same seems to be true of the Western Zhou period in China. Swords existed, but they were not the main weapon of war, with the technologically advanced Chinese states using chariots, bows and mechanical crossbows. Even as a backup weapon, the dagger axe basically was just a sort of mini handheld spear tip, and this would be preferred to the sword. From the Iron Age, around 12th century BC and onwards, 
swords became increasingly common. Early iron swords were only marginally stronger than bronze, but the discovery of steel smelting led to the more widespread use of swords all over Europe and the wider world. The Celtic civilization pioneered metalworking in this era, and swords were widely used among the steppe people and in the Middle East. This widespread use of swords fits with the image of Celtic military culture in particular, which focused heavily on individual bravery and skill rather than discipline and formation fighting. Archaeological evidence from this time also already shows the importance of swords as status symbols, with intricately designed blades being found in burial sites from this period. The Roman Empire saw the use of swords go in two specific directions. One was the mass-produced gladius, which were likely adopted from the swords used against the Romans by Celtiberians in Spain. These short swords were often engraved with an individual soldier's name, showing an interesting personal connection between the warrior and the weapon. These swords would have been used as part of a tight military formation in a Roman legion, which was in some ways a distant evolution from the spear and shield Greek hoplite formations. However, the other major use of swords would have been in gladiatorial combat. Unlike in its military use, gladiatorial combat was again highly individualised, carried out by professionals trained in a specific style of combat for the entertainment of the audience. It is this which I think starts to explain why the sword has such a central and enduring place in literary and mythological depictions of warfare. Sword combat would have been far flashier and more entertaining than watching massed ranks push against each other with shields or fire arrows at each other, although there are accounts of these kind of battles taking place in the Colosseums. Sword fighting would have been highly skilled, and it would have required years of training to become proficient. Additionally, sword fighting was something which only professional warriors could do. Hunters would have known how to use bows and arrows, and peasants or slaves could probably be trained to stay in a formation and hold a spear. Swordsmanship set someone apart from these groups. Now, obviously, swords weren't the only weapons used in gladiatorial combat, and by this time, other cultures were also using swords much more widely. But the point is, prowess with a sword sort of elevated someone to a membership of some elite warrior class, separate from the rest of society, in a way which wasn't obviously true of other multi-use weapons or simpler ways of fighting. The role of the sword as a sort of class signifier would develop in a number of cultures throughout the Middle Ages. In Europe, the price of swords declined rapidly as manufacturing techniques developed further. However, certain types of swords still functioned as a mark of nobility or wealth. Using large two-handed weapons, such as a greatsword, would often have been limited to knights and other professional soldiers, since they would have been protected by high-quality armour. If you lacked heavy armour, then you would likely have wanted one arm free to hold a shield of some kind. In some countries, during certain periods, there were actually formal bans on the peasantry carrying certain types of weapons. For example, Barbarossa banned peasants from carrying lances or swords in 1152. In 1440, Louis XVI of France produced a list of noble privileges which includes the right to carry a sword. Probably the most well-known example of this connection between weaponry and status was the Japanese samurai. The importance of swords waxed and waned in Japan, with early combat being primarily based around bows, with the mass production of swords coming later in the Sengoku or Warring States period. 1488 saw a katanagari, or sword hunt, ordered by the Totoyomi Hideyoshi, known as the Great Unifier of Japan. Sword hunts had been conducted before, and were basically a mass confiscation of weapons belonging to potential enemies of the ruling regime. 
1488 sword hunt was an attempt to disarm the peasants and other potentially rebellious groups, solidifying military power around the Samurai Ali. It was claimed that these weapons would be melted down and used to build a statue of the Buddha. You can just imagine some sort of ancient version of the NRA resisting this. In 1629, an edict was passed which mandated that the samurai should wear a pair of swords, a set of one long and one short sword known as the Daisho, when on official duty. In 1683, the right to wear this pair of swords was limited purely to the samurai class, solidifying this as a symbol of their status. If the Warring States period in Japan had been typified by a constant rebellion and civil war, the Tokugawa shogunate which followed it was marked by hierarchy military authority and the strict class system. In many parts of the world, but in Japan especially, the sword functioned as a formal symbol of this authoritarian military feudalism. Alongside the economic and political symbolism of the sword, it had also by this period taken on an important role in religious iconography, which is surely as important a factor in explaining why they remain such an enduring aspect of our culture today. Swords played a symbolic role in almost all religions, symbolising the power of God. Several Christian saints were, and still are, commonly depicted with swords, and the Book of Revelation contains the following memorable line. And from his mouth proceeds a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This connection between religion and the sword was probably further entrenched by the medieval crusades, which saw European knights fighting in the Middle East and Europe. The holy orders which grew out of these crusades put a great deal of stock in their swords, including, most notably, the Livonian Brothers of the Sword. Interestingly, the cruciform crossguard has also become more popular from the 10th century onwards, around the same time as the crusades. This was basically a protruding metal bar between the base of the blade and the handle. This would serve to protect the user's hand, but also this cool design feature um, gave the sword the appearance of the Christian crucifix. This crossguard is practical as well as symbolic, and there's a fair amount of debate as to whether religion really influenced the design at all. But this image of the crusader as a defender of Christendom holding a weapon which is literally the symbol of Christ is a powerful and enduring one. The religious significance of swords was not limited to Europe and Christianity, of course. From the 8th century onwards, there are Hindu and Buddhist statues depicting deities holding swords, and you still see these kind of statues in temples throughout Asia today. The Kanda, a double-edged straight sword, is often seen as a symbol of Shiva. In Eastern religions, the sword is often seen as a symbol of wisdom, cutting through ignorance, rather than God's wrath or power or authority. This symbolism sounds kind of nice, but that's not often the impression you get from the statues, which look pretty wild. By the dawn of the early modern period, swords were pretty well entrenched as signifiers of wealth, power and noble warrior status, and also played an important role in religious iconography. But they were also on the brink of being superseded by newer technology, notably smaller and more reliable firearms, as well as bayonets which allowed gunmen to fight at short range. This wouldn't immediately do away with swords, particularly for the purposes of dueling and self-defence, but this was the period where they entered a terminal decline in military importance. However, one under-discussed reason, I think, for the cultural endurance of swords is precisely their anachronistic nature. 
This declining military use arguably contributes to the romanticisation of the sword as the individual weapon of the highly skilled nobility, which stands in stark contrast to the mechanistic brutality of modern warfare. In the first Star Wars movie, Obi-Wan Kenobi introduces the lightsaber by describing it as an elegant weapon for a more civilised age, directly contrasting it with the guns that the franchise's hapless clone henchmen use. The Star Wars movies took a lot from Japanese culture and from samurai movies in particular, especially Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress. Kurosawa's samurai movies also play on this idea of the sword as tradition and the gun as modernity, although the samurai are often portrayed as outdated rather than inherently heroic. Although the later Star Wars movies start to problematise the Jedi with their backwardness and traditions, the original trilogy hues pretty closely to the idea of the heroic sword-wielding warrior monk. The lightsaber in these movies requires skill and dedication, unlike a gun that any old idiot could use. It's personal to the user, singling them out as a character of importance in contrast to the literal clones that make up most of the bad guys. It looks cool, or even beautiful, but most importantly, it's a weapon that harkens back to the past, symbolising a connection to a lost golden age before the current semi-dystopian setting. It's a weapon for heroes rather than savages. But it wasn't always this way. In a famous tome about the history of swords, British explorer and fencing enthusiast Richard F. Burton wrote this in late 1884. If the history of arms be the history of our kind, and if the missile, by which he meant spear or slingshot, be the favourite weapon of the savage and the barbarian, the metal sword eminently characterises the semi-civilised, and the use of gunpowder, the civilised man. Even with all the symbolic importance of swords at this stage, and even coming from a fencer and historian of swords, it was clear that there was a forward movement in history, with guns representing a more advanced stage of development. Swords may be elegant and interesting, but they were surely not more civilised than modern weaponry. Arguably, it was the unexpected brutality of the early 20th century which laid the groundwork for our current cultural fascination with swords. The world wars produced technological advances, but they did not produce anything like a more civilised form of warfare. Instead, we saw huge military casualties from trench combat and civilian casualties from rockets and bombing raids, followed by the horror of the atomic bomb. Elite combat between highly trained nobles was replaced by ordinary people being fed into the meat grinder of mechanised warfare. Of course, this is a hugely rose-tinted view of pre-modern combat, where plenty of civilians were killed and plenty of peasants were put through the meat grinder. However, technological progress had produced violence on a scale far beyond anything that previous generations had experienced or imagined, setting up a contrast between modernity and the past which the sword represents. The enduring artistic and cultural role of the sword is maybe part of the 20th century's revulsion towards what war had become. Okay, thanks very much for listening. Uh, I'll be back in just a few weeks because we're going to have a bit of a new feature. What I'm going to do is produce really short five-minute episodes once a month to complement these, and these are going to focus on um, theoretical um, questions around violence or warfare, things from sociology and international relations. Um, 
I hope these will be of interest to everyone, but it may be especially interesting to you know students of politics or uh, international relations or sociology or history. So um, if you know anyone who might be interested, you can maybe encourage them to check it out. I'll probably look to upload them on YouTube as well. Um, okay, um, yeah, thanks a lot for listening, um, and I'll see you later. Cheers.